The Athletic. Well, after English football pause for a moment of quiet reflection this weekend, the Champions League returns tonight. You know, Sporting have had to sell their best players in the last year to Fulham and Wolves because that's how football works nowadays. And Edwards is now the kind of star of the team. And that's a really exciting position for him to be in. I think he's done extremely well since he arrived. I think it's very difficult to come to a new country and... um play in a different league. You know, the first half of that game against Juventus last week, they were on a different planet. I mean, they were fantastic. But again, it, it does seem to last 20, 25 minutes. Sileone, and they come for another one, Alisson with a save, it's in! The second goal for Zielinski, and within 90 seconds of the restart, Napoli score the fourth. You talk about how suddenly the energy that defined that team was missing. If you play that way, you're so reliant on everybody sort of going at it full throttle, full pelt. If you're not playing that way, the whole thing just falls apart. Joining me to talk about three stories we'll be keeping a close eye on during the week are the Athletic senior writer Ollie Kay, our tactics writer Michael Cox, and our Spurs and England correspondent Jack Pitbrook. I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. So... Ollie, you've been writing about what Klopp's Liverpool might be able to learn from Arrigo Sacchi's famous Milan team of the late 80s. We'll come on to that uh, very shortly. Michael has also been watching Paris Saint-Germain under their new manager, Christophe Galtier. So we'll see what's changed there, if anything. Uh, And Jack uh, will be talking to us mainly about uh, Marcus Edwards, who will line up against Tottenham later today. And Jack, let's start with that one. Suddenly they're beginning to make chances and this is one of the best. Edwards is there and scores. It's a boy from Enfield. Scores for Sporting Lisbon in Frankfurt against Eintracht. And he has been the best player on the pitch. Whenever he's got the ball, you just get the feeling something is going to happen. Hello, Sporting Geesters. Um, thank you for the support. It was a tough game, but we're happy to come out with a three points. Vamos. Let's start with Tottenham then and 23-year-old Marcus Edwards, who famously reminded Maurizio Pochettino of Lionel Messi, but then signed for Sporting last year, faces his old club in the Champions League tonight. Is there any sense of regret from Tottenham here, Jack? I I sense by the fact that you're already sort of gurning at me that that probably not. Uh, No, I don't think there's a lot of regret. Tottenham and Marcus Edwards' relationship deteriorated uh, during his time at the academy to the point that by the time that he he left in 2019 to go to Vittoria Guimaraes, having spent the previous season on loan at Excelsior in Holland, it was time for him to go. I think that, I think there was an agreement that it wasn't much. They didn't particularly want him around anymore. Uh, Edwards himself didn't want to be there anymore. So I think it it suited all parties for him to go. But I do think. He's proved a lot of people wrong because when he, you know, when he left, people didn't necessarily think he'd be at this level three years on. But now you know, he's playing the Champions League group stage this week, which is a huge credit to him. What went wrong? Why didn't it work out? Uh, I think he found it difficult to adjust to some of the demands of the pressure, like being a professional player at a big club like Tottenham. I think he, that you know, there was a very sort of stormy process towards him signing his first professional contract which left quite I think quite a lot of ill will on both sides I don't think he's always been advised especially well he's changed his advisors quite a few times I, like I interviewed Marcus in 2019 just before he, he went to just before he went to Vittoria and 
I thought he was very, he was very, very shy. Like he was very, you know, it clearly didn't come easily to him doing an interview with a journalist. And I, as it happens, I think, you know, I watched an interview with him the other day and he was much more, he was much more confident and much more himself. So I think, you know, this is part of him that's, you know, really has developed. But I can, even just in the process of, you know, spending an hour chatting with him, I got, I could get a bit of a sense of why, managers might think he was uncommunicative unengaging because you know and and obviously there's a fine line between shyness and surliness you know it's not mm. i'm not saying managers were right to criticize him but i can see why he might come across as being unengaging not the first uh ollie you know bright young thing to maybe slightly lose his way no i mean the, 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 there have been so many and there have been so many others who haven't um bounced back anything like as much as Marcus Edwards has um, to be playing in the Champions League at 23 to be doing so well in, in a in a in a strong team in Portugal is is hardly a, a tale of woe there are so many very very talented kids who who just fall off fall away altogether whether it's whether it's a motivation issue whether it's a personality issue character issue behavior issue or even an opportunity issue I, I don't even know where to start in reeling off English football wonder kids that have that have been great at 17, 18, 19 and and certainly below Champions League level by um by 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 the age of 23. What is probably new and, and encouraging and, and unusual um is that Marcus Edwards has gone to Portugal when I would have said, you know, based on what Jack was saying as well, he didn't really seem to be somebody who would who was necessarily cut out personality-wise for playing overseas. And he's done really well. And he's and he's um, you know, he started off at Guimaraes and 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 did well there. Has now got a transfer to Sporting. Has started well there, and it's. I mean, I I think it's a, I think it's a positive story, really, rather than a rather than a tale of woe. Yeah, I think it is definitely a positive story mm. um, because it would have been. I mean, if you speak to anyone at Spurs, they'll always say that Edwards really is probably the most talented player that's come through that academy. You know, more naturally gifted than say Kane or Winks or Skip or. Mason or any of the other players they've had in the last 20 plus years. Um, and it would have been a real shame if he'd, people, people would often compare him to, him to say, Rebel Morrison. Rebel Morrison had a pretty good career. You know, he's played in big leagues all around the world. He's currently, well, he's, he's in the MLS now. He's played quite a lot of Premier League football, but he's not really played, I don't think Rebel Morrison's really played much Champions League football. Um, you know, even when he went to Lazio, it didn't really work out. Whereas the fact that Edwards has already got a few, you know, a good season in Holland with Excelsior, three good years at Vittoria, and now it's really, you know, Sporting have had to sell their best players in the last year to Fulham and Wolves because that's how football works nowadays. And Edwards is yeah. now the kind of starring, the new star of the team. And that's a really exciting position for him to be in. And, and the, the final thing with him here, which you've both kind of alluded to, is you, you could throw him in with the other young English talent that is abroad trying to make a name for themselves. But a lot of the other on young English talent abroad was picked out of academies because they weren't getting the opportunities and they de- and they decided to go whereas this this for Marcus Edwards is about real hard work to get your way back isn't it yeah yeah it, it, it is about real hard work to get his way back I think it's also I think the environment of being abroad might help him a bit there's maybe slightly less attention uh maybe slightly maybe slightly less pressure maybe he thinks that you know for better or worse his card is marked a little bit in this country. Uh, I think he certainly thinks that he's, you know, there's a misperception of him. You know, it didn't go well at Norwich. And even in 2019, back when he was trying to leave Tottenham, the move ended up in Portugal. Quite a lot of teams had a good look at him and then decided at the last minute, ah, 
I, no, we're not going to take a risk on him this time. So I think actually going abroad has really helped him. To, it's really been great for him to go to countries where he has a bit of a clean slate and doesn't have to worry quite so much about um, about you know, his misperception of getting in the way. Messi has Mbappe there. Here he goes. Neymar is in the middle. Mbappe had to pass. He's been told now he had to pass. He's not even looking at Neymar. A little bit selfish there. Uh, let's uh, turn our attention to Paris Saint-Germain next uh, on the pod, on this uh, Champions League special pod. They're in action on Wednesday night. They take on Maccabi Haifa. After uh, Pochettino, Unai Emery, Thomas Tuchel, Carlo Ancelotti have all failed, I suppose, in differing ways uh, to find a way to balance all their attacking flair. Does their current man show signs of being able to change that? That man is Christophe Galtier. Michael, uh, what can you tell us about Galtier? Well, he's an interesting guy. He's um, he's clearly a good coach, a good tactician. He won uh, Ligue 1 with Lille a couple of years ago. And obviously, if you win Ligue 1 with anyone apart from PSG, um, you've done pretty well. And that's what attracted uh, PSG to him, although he was actually at, uh, at Nice last year. Um, but he's faced with the same problems. Um, it's a nice problem to have and all the other cliches, having Messi and Neymar and Mbappe. But, I mean, the game last weekend... Um, against Juventus I just thought was a, an absolute classic PSG performance they scored a couple of absolutely fantastic goals and in moments were fantastic but at other points particularly in the second half there was just no defensive shape whatsoever and actually I think it, I mean Juve are not a good side at the moment I think a good side probably would have turned that around and actually beaten PSG uh, No, although Juve were involved in one of the most comical endings to a game <laughs> I think I've, I've ever seen in Serie A the other day which is well worth checking out on social media uh, if you hadn't seen that Does he implement a defensive structure Galtier that the, play, that the players then just don't follow? Yeah, I, I think that is basically the case and again, I, this just seems to be a, a common pattern for, uh, with PSG for me I mean, every time I've been doing some kind of analysis of a big PSG game in the last couple of years the common pattern is that the first 10-15 minutes, Neymar and Mbappe and to a certain extent Messi are doing the hard work. They are tracking back or they are pressing and you think, oh, this is a different PSG. They're all up for it. And then the more the game goes on, usually around the 25 minute mark, so we're not talking the final 10 minutes here, we're talking a third of the way through the game, they just switch off. It happens again and again. And another thing that happens, and there was a classic example of this against Juventus, is that if there's a bit of a squabble where one of them doesn't pass to the other, then all the defensive work goes out the window. And you had that at the start of the second half last week. Neymar went through, maybe could have passed to Mbappe, didn't. Mbappe's kind of gesturing, why didn't you pass? So then two minutes later, Mbappe goes through, definitely should have squared to Neymar. Neymar gets even more exasperated. And from that, there's a counter-attack. And just the three forwards aren't in shot. You know, as soon as that kind of trust, that teamwork falls down, it's almost like they take that out on the rest of the team and just make their lives more difficult. So, I mean, it is entertaining to watch. And, you know, from a kind of analysis perspective and writing, you know, this is it's terrible. They're not getting back and defending. But actually, I was watching the game last week and thinking this is a really fun, constant storyline. I mean, if PSG had all these players and they were really hardworking and tactically disciplined, it would be quite boring. But the fact that this kind of old school, I guess, equivalent to what the Real Madrid uh, Galacticos were, you know, maybe 20 years ago. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't have a great amount of love for PSG, but I, I sneakily do really enjoy all this. I mean, Ollie, it is it is fun, but from Galtier's point of view, I mean, like like his 
predecessors. I mean, it, it is trying to manage children, isn't it? You would describe Lionel Messi as a child. You might say that Neymar is a is a fun loving footballer rather than a, rather than a exceptionally driven one. I mean, he must have had some kind of drive to be playing the way he is, you know, to have had the career he's had at 30. But I I do get the point in terms of um, sort of extravagance, flamboyance. Um, but it's, I think when you look at PSG and you look at the last few coaches they've had, I don't think they've ever really looked like a team that reflects their coach. I don't, I don't think Tuchel got them playing the way Tuchel wants his teams to play. Um I certainly don't think Pochettino did. Galtier, it, it seems to have started pretty encouragingly, but I, I, I don't think the time to judge PSG is ever in September, October, Champions League group stage or, or the opening weeks and months of, of Ligue 1. It's, it seems like we end up judging PSG over what happens in, I mean, not just Champions League knockout sites, but all, the last few years, it's been what's happened in the last, the final half hour of a two-legged Champions League tie where things have just imploded. I think it's just so difficult to go from being the type of team they are, which is free-spirited, fun-loving um, entertainers, to um, to just trying to compete to win the Champions League. The margins have been so small, but, but significant. And I think that that's probably more true than ever about not judging them at this point, because there's a World Cup midway through the season. And I think yeah. it's fair to say that Neymar, Mbappe uh, and and Messi, for various reasons, all probably care more about the World Cup than what they do with PSG. And I think they are just going to be wanting to play themselves into top form for November, December. What happens after that, we don't know. But it's it's. Uh, I think there's every reason to think they'll be on real top form up until the World Cup. Oli's point about previous managers not getting their teams to play not getting their Paris Saint-Germain team to play like their other teams would play when they've managed elsewhere does is it too early to tell whether Galtier's Paris Saint-Germain play like Galtier's Lille it probably is too early to say but I, it's just inevitable that they're not I mean he just doesn't have the authority and and the kind of respect that I think previous managers do and I think if they weren't able to implement their philosophy I can't really see why he would really and that's the reality. I mean, it's the manager doesn't have that much power. The power is with the players and the president. The, the manager is almost this kind of disposable guy who, mm. you know, sometimes can do a short-term job. It's just the culture they've created at the club. And I can't really see how that culture will ever change unless they, they have probably only one of these three. Uh, and then maybe it can be based around them individually. But once you have these three in the side, I mean, it's all about them. And the only job of the manager is, is tactically trying to work out how you organise the other seven outfielders to compensate for their lack of defensive work. Yeah, I think Cox is right. That's definitely something that Pochettino found, I think, when he was at PSG, is that obviously when Pochettino was at Tottenham and even when he was at uh, Southampton or Espanyol, like, he was the powerful guy. And like he knew how to build a, a team of generally young, hungry players who were ambitious, but who really looked up to him and who did what he said. And if he said right, we're going to go and do a 15-kilometre run or whatever, they would happily go and do it. And also, if he didn't pick them, they wouldn't complain because that's just how it worked. You know, he Pochettino always used to tell his players, um, you don't have any right to play the games. Like, if you sign a contract to play for Tottenham, that's a contract. that contract is just about showing up to do training. Playing games is a privilege, which I will grant you if you train well. 
He goes to PSG and something that's out the window. You can't say to Neymar or Lionel Messi, oh yeah, you've got no right to play the games. It's insane because they'll just go, you know, hypothetically, if that were to happen, they would go and complain to uh, to NASA about it. I think Pochettino found it impossible to create the kind of ethos of hard work and also of, you know, players looking up to him, which was the basis of, of his success in Tottenham. So as Coxie, and as Coxie says, it's just, you know, that it's, it's such a unique balance having those big players and you can't really replicate the sort of ethos that you have at clubs that aren't owned by Qatar. It'd be great fun though, wouldn't it? If you're a new manager at Paris Saint-Germain, just, just for a laugh to see if you could get them all to do a 15-kilometre run on the first day of pre-season, just to see, just to see Neymar and Mbappe and Messi's face at that stage. That's why I always um, found it a little bit a little bit surprising when people... There was a lot of like linking of Antonio Conte to the PSG job <laughs> last season when it was his Spurs... You know, when it was going pretty badly for him at Spurs. Uh, and in a sense, you could kind of, you, I could see why it might suit the Conte camp for those stories to exist. But then you think about it for five seconds, you think, really, Antonio Conte in that dressing room? It's kind of crazy. That would be an Amazon all or nothing, wouldn't it? They'd, they'd, they'd break the bank to uh, to to show that. Um, for, for all the discussions about where there can be problems with this front three, their stats, Michael, at the start of this season, whether they're shrugging at each other, not passing to each other, whatever, their their collective stats are phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't overlook the fact that they they are scoring some fantastic goals. Um, in particular, they seem obsessed with one of the players, usually Messi, sometimes Neymar, getting the ball between the lines and just scooping the ball over the top of the defence for someone else to volley in. They are scoring some incredible goals. I think Gautier should take some credit for that because... He has changed from basically a four at the back, three in midfield, to three at the back and four in midfield with two wing backs who are providing the width. And that means the front three are just closer together. They're all in central positions. At times, Messi looks more like a number 10 than a wide forward. And yeah, their combination play is brilliant. And, you know, the first half of that game against Juventus last week, they were on a different planet. I mean, they were fantastic. But again, it does seem to last 20, 25 minutes. And we know these days that that's just not good enough. I think they could get away with playing like this probably 25, 30 years ago. But now there's such emphasis on every player pressing, doing their defensive duties, whatever that may be. I just don't think you can defend with with seven uh, outfield players and expect to win the Champions League. Their stats, by the way, uh, collectively, the the three of them have made 22 appearances this season and they've registered 22 goals and 13 assists in all competitions. So that works out as a goal every 84 minutes and a a goal or assist every 52 minutes between the three players. The funny thing about that is I think there was a feeling last season, which obviously was the first season having these three players together, that the player that I did, you know, in a well-run team, having good players would multiply the effect of each other. But last season, they seemed to have the opposite effect. And the, the combined number, like Mbappe scored tons of goals last season. But Messi and Neymar hard, hardly really scored any. They did quite a lot of you know what you might call stat padding at the end of the season. But generally speaking, their numbers were really poor. And it did feel as if last season, PSG struggled to get the most, I mean, not so much Mbappe, but certainly Messi and Neymar. And they were actually at their best. You know, I think their best performance of the season was probably the first leg against Real Madrid at the Parc des Princes, where it looked like they were going to knock them out. Neymar didn't start that game. And it felt like they couldn't, you know, they didn't know how to attack with both guys on the pitch at the same time. But if they've now got a way where they can have Messi and Neymar, as well as Mbappe, attacking well in, you know, in tandem, then that's clearly like a big step up from where they were last season. 
Does Neymar have a different role, finally, on, on Paris Saint-Germain, Michael? And I'm just looking at that statistical graph that's done the rounds on, on social media where, I mean, it basically looks like he's the best player the world has ever seen, according to, according to that statistical graph. So has he, is he being used differently? I wouldn't necessarily say being used differently, but I, just watching him, it does feel like there's less of Neymar and Messi in the same zones. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he has been the standout performer at the start of this season. Um, and I, I do think it's fair to say as well that for all the stick he gets for certain things, particularly the diving, I think of the three, he is the one who puts in the most work without the ball. I mean, he is actually... Like a lot of Brazilian players, he's quite scrappy. He's quite aggressive. He's willing to get involved in that kind of thing. And I think, again, slightly to repeat my earlier point, but I think probably the World Cup means the most to him. Um, I know Messi hasn't won it, but Messi's had an extraordinary career, probably you know widely regarded as the greatest player of modern times, maybe the, the greatest of all time. Mbappe has already won the World Cup. Neymar, I think his whole career has really all been about Brazil. And I just think he's he's got the mentality that the next few months is basically going to define his career. And if he can go into the World Cup on great form, win that for Brazil, then I think he'll be regarded as a legend rather than, you know, maybe slightly harshly. I think there's a danger people will talk about him, not quite in Marcus Edwards terms, but as, you know, a player who maybe didn't quite fulfil his full potential. Particularly Oli or or Jack when the World Cup of eight years ago was so painful for him. Yeah, I was was in, in Brazil reporting on that i was i think i was at the brazil camp two days before that that um quarterfinal against uh colombia when he got the injury and the story was the story was largely about him at that point it was it, it felt like he was you know very much the poster boy of of brazilian football he was the one that was carrying the nation's hopes on his shoulder and you know the, he got the the, the the serious back injury in, the, in that sort of ugly challenge in the quarterfinal and and it ended pretty calamitously for, for for Brazil as a as a country, and tearfully for him as well. But it's um, the difficulty with the World Cup is it comes around every four years, and 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 it's the, the opportunity to make up for it is is so brief. And you can have it, you can have a great group stage, and it and it just be gone in an instant in in, in a knockout game. So um, it's sometimes harsh, I think, when we judge players on 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 World Cups. I kind of felt like in the last World Cup, one. Neymar was so obviously so desperate at the 2018 World Cup to win the World Cup by himself for Brazil and to make up for 2040 that it ended up having quite a I felt like it had quite a negative effect on Brazil's play like it was just it was too much the Neymar show I went to one of the games in St Petersburg where they beat Costa Rica 2-0 and Neymar was he was behaving as if it was like he was playing football for his 10th birthday party. He was doing ridiculous skills and everything. He got he almost looked a bit upset when Coutinho scored what could have been the winner. to put Brazil one up in the last minute before Neymar then added another after that. And I just felt like, it, you know, psychologically, he, it, it was too much about him. But I just wonder whether in this year's World Cup, because there's going to be, you know, Brazil, I think, got more good attacking players around him, whether that's Vinicius or Richarlison or Gabriel Jesus, playing well, then maybe that will actually kind of take some of the psychological burden off of Neymar and maybe actually be helpful to Brazil. Uh, Let's move on to uh, Liverpool, um, who take on Ajax in the second round of Champions League matches, having been walloped by Napoli uh, last week. Which rhythm? No, we hadn't. We had no rhythm. So we played a really... Did you watch our game? (laughs) 
Losing this rhythm would be really cool. <laughs> Ollie, you're talking about Jurgen Klopp. Um, you think uh, needing to draw on some advice from the great Arrigo Saki. Explain. I, I wasn't necessarily talking about taking advice from. Um, it was more about. Uh, I, it was, I was reading Arrigo Saki's book, The Immortals, recently. There it is, um, which is which is based on his um, on his great Milan team of the late eighty-seven well, to ninety-one, and he he was. Um, he was talking at one stage in a book about um, how badly out of form they were. And I felt his diagnosis of a really underperforming out of form Milan team really, really reminded me not just of any out of form team, but it, it really seemed to fit the Liverpool of recent weeks. So if I, if I can just read from it, he said, if this team doesn't have a few things like pressing and pace, it loses 50% of its potential. Please don't think it's just a case of getting a few injured players back. We need to rediscover our game and our mentality. We're suffering from a clear drop in desire, attentiveness, determination, doing too, too many things carelessly. It goes on like that. And it's it, he's talking really about a team that, you know, a great team, a great Milan team that you, you and I, Chappers, will, will, will remember. And it's, it, yeah. but it was, um, it was, he, he was talking about how suddenly the energy that defined that team was missing. And without, that energy because they played a, a high pressing game by the standards of, of that era. If you play that way, you're so reliant on everybody sort of going at it full throttle, full pelt, pressing from the front, attacking from the front, etc. If you're not playing that way, the whole thing just falls apart. If, if you haven't got that that motivation, that energy, that collective belief, which has really defined Liverpool for the last five years, bar a, a disastrous couple of months in early 2021. The whole thing, you look like a really ordinary team without it. And I think Liverpool have looked like a severely ordinary team so far this season. So it was more about his diagnosis of what a high-pressing team, high-energy team looks like when that energy isn't there. What was his cure? His cure was, uh, funny enough, hard work on the training field, working them even harder. Um, and I'm sure that idea has, has, has occurred to Jürgen Klopp. It's interesting to hear him last week after the Napoli game, which was a horrendous performance. He was saying, well, you know, maybe we need to kind of reinvent ourselves or reinvent our game. And I, I was really surprised by that because I would have thought it's not like plan A has been found out and um, you know, Liverpool's still trying to do the same things, but haven't, you know, but but it's just not working anymore. I felt looking at them like they weren't really implementing plan a in terms of the players weren't it looks so lethargic and, and so demoralized and i just think you know many great teams there have been great teams which when they're not at their best they've still got the ability to sort of go through games and maybe win it with through organization or a bit of individual brilliance and it just struck me watching liverpool the last few weeks and they're reading that that this team just really needs to be at full pelt and it raises the question of maybe some of these players aren't going to be able to do it anymore because they're so they're so they've been doing it like that for four and a half years at, at full pelt well well there are a couple of things on, on that the first one i would say i would say to you michael which i was i was talking to uh, neil atkinson who's from the anfield rap last night and he was talking about the right hand side of the midfield three 
and Jurgen Klopp trying to do something different with that midfielder, wanting more um, attacking really from that midfielder rather than um, maybe the functionality of, of of that role in the past within his team. So what you're basically talking about is a Harvey Elliott type on that right-hand channel rather than a Jordan Henderson. Now, of course, that has a knock-on in so many different areas defensively, doesn't it? And that's where a lot of people are focusing criticism of Liverpool at the moment, down their right-hand channel defensively. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. Um, on the opening day against Fulham, I thought that was the thing they did best, actually, when when Salah was kind of um, getting space on the outside because Harvey Elliott was playing quite high and attracting the Fulham left-back, I think, Robinson to him and Salah was getting space on the outside. But I think you're right. I think that has had a really big impact. And I mean, that is... And Henderson hasn't been at his best so far this season himself. But I mean, that's what Henderson's been all about. You can't have great, talented, technical players in every position on the pitch. You've got to have some balancing players. And Henderson did that really well. So I think you're right. And I think there's also... And this isn't a new criticism. But I think Alexander-Arnold's defending at times this season has been really, really bad. I mean, we know that he's he's not going to he's never going to be Paolo Maldini. He's in the side because he's a brilliant crosser, fantastic on the ball, and you can tolerate some defensive shortcomings. But there's been a couple of goals. I mean, the ones against Napoli and also the ones against Manchester United, where he's really just stopped running. And um, you know, I completely agree with with what Neil's saying, and I know he's not intending that as a criticism of of Harvey Elliott, but. You know, I think players, they do have to take individual responsibility. And it's clear to me that Alexander-Arnold has been really quite poor so far this season. And then the other point from from Ollie Jack, which is about um, squad building in many ways. And the other thing that, that Neil discussed with me is that Liverpool squad doesn't have that many players, say between 23 and 27. There are quite a lot 30-31 and there are a few who are a lot younger. But those... Those real peak, peak years that balance being in your prime and the experience and maturity of having played a few seasons, they, they don't have many within that that band at the moment. Exactly, yeah. That's why they remind me a little bit of, Liverpool fans won't agree with this bit, but they remind me a little bit of like a, a better and more successful version of the kind of back end of the Pochettino years at Tottenham, where the team had been too similar for too long and it hadn't really been updated and then all and then all of a sudden it kind of all starts to look old at the same time. So really, I mean, you know, Thiago's obviously been a fantastic addition, but even then he only plays about a third of the games. And obviously this year they finally brought in new young exciting forwards in in Nunes and Diaz. But I kind of wonder whether or not they should have brought those guys in two years ago. Why didn't they if they if they'd signed players like Nunes and Diaz's profile back in twenty nineteen and then started signing new midfielders as well, then maybe, you know, they would have a fresher feel than they have now. Do you think they're partly rebuilding, Ollie, without telling us that they're rebuilding, if you see what I mean? I think they're clearly rebuilding, but I think the pace of the rebuild has been hit by the, the pandemic, for one thing, because it meant they couldn't really do much at all in the summers of 2020 and 2021. Um, if you look at the, if you look at the, the players, the number of players that they've signed since about 20. 18 you know the, the core of this team and, and the successful team was was built between 2015 and 2018 since then it's been Minamino Simicast Jota Canate Thiago um, Diaz Nunez it's not been a great deal of players bought for the starting 11 really until 
until the last, you know, until Canate, Diaz, Nunez, it's not really been players who have been built to rejuvenate the starting eleven. That's what I would say. And it's 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 interesting to me when, when you talk about Harvey Elliott's role, and and I, I would say looking at it, he and Diaz have been, I would say, Liverpool's best, most impressive individual performers this season. But they both play in a way that, you know, I would say Diaz doesn't give you what Sadio Mane would give the team in terms of cohesion on that left-hand side. The way he used to link up with Robertson and Firmino and Wijnaldum back in the day. Mane was absolutely perfect in that role. Whereas Diaz, it's it's much more sort of frenetic fits and starts and quite individualistic. The way Harvey Elliott plays is quite, it doesn't get, it doesn't, balance the team and balance that right hand side as well. So even even and even Nunez, you'd say, well, he's he's a you know he's, he's a very good centre forward, but is he going to give as much to the balance of the team as as Firmino did? So it's to me there are there are big question marks in in this, you know, A, have they done enough rebuilding? And B, the players they've brought in for this rebuild, are they going to be able to replicate what the, what the players they've they're replacing have done, and um, I feel Liverpool need to go a bit more back to the way they were, rather than trying to reinvent it. Ollie kind of said what I was going to say. Sorry, so. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. It works better. <laughs> the final thing I was going to say to you, though, Michael, they do miss Jota. I mean, we're looking at we're looking at lots of different injuries that they've had, and uh, and that will be a concern to them behind the scenes. But Jota seems to give them, you know, we can talk about Thiago and so on and so forth, but but Jota seems to give them something else and they're missing him. Yeah, he's a funny one. I mean, he made such a, a big impact when he came in immediately after they signed him. But I think I'm right in saying he's actually on a, a pretty poor run without scoring something like 14 games or something like that. But I, I agree with you in the sense that he is the kind of player who does seem to operate a little bit outside the system and can kind of just pop up with a goal... Um, you know, just just finding a bit of space in the box, um, but yeah, potentially he can be um, give him something different. Certainly, I mean, they they certainly haven't figured out how to play. I think in the final third, I mean, Nunes is a very good player, but uh, a very different player to what they're used to going forward. And I think maybe I know he hasn't played all the games because he was suspended for a few, but I think Salah's role is going to be different this season. He's not going to be able to rely on a, a centre forward who's all about playing him in. So that's going to change things as well. Um, but yeah, a lot to figure out. Is it a blip, Ollie, or is it becoming more uh, more than a blip to finish? I would say it's going to be very hard for them to get back to the the way they were performing in the second half of last season, which was which was astoundingly consistent. I mean, that that was that was back to the consistency of 2018 to 2020. And I, to be honest, that it surprised me how just how consistent and impressive they were. Last season, I, I thought last season was going to be a transitional season. Uh, I think maybe they ended up putting transition and rebuilding on on hold in order to sort of attack on all fronts last season. And, and maybe this is the season where they, you know, w- w- where they end up sort of falling away a bit and um, trying to rebuild as they go, which is not which is not easy. Good stuff. Thank you, all three of you. See you soon. And remember, for unrivaled Champions League coverage and plenty more besides, subscribe to The Athletic for just a pound a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash footballpod. And we'll have another episode for you at roughly the same time tomorrow afternoon. Uh, Hit subscribe and I'll see you then. 
The Athletic.